Welcome, everyone. This is Islam for Christians, episode 79, Islamic History, 622, the Hijra, part two, on the run. In the movies, and in real life as well, there are two basic phases of an escape. You know, an escape from a prison, an escape from a prison camp, an escape from whatever. There are two basic phases. There is one, escaping the perimeter. You know, just getting out of the place that is holding you in. That's the first part. And it's always hard. But then there's also the second part, which is staying out, which can prove even harder sometimes. You know, you have to get yourself as far from the danger zone as possible and then get to the place where you know you will actually be safe and hidden out or, you know, some kind of plan to get out of the prison and then to stay out of prison. And of course, this takes some planning. In the Shawshank Redemption, for example, when Andy Dufresne crawled out of that sewer pipe, you know, it felt great. It was a great scene, but that was kind of the beginning. He still had work to do. He had to bring some proper clothes with him. He had to go into town and empty the bank account and eventually get to his destination in Mexico. In another escape movie, uh, The Great Escape, you know, digging that tunnel was quite a feat, but... As they dug those tunnels, they were also forging documents and planning a route out of Germany and into a neutral country. And few of them, you know, even though maybe, I, I can't remember exactly, but let's say a hundred of them escaped. Almost none of them made it past the second part. But at least they planned for it, which gave them a fighting chance. So this starts phase two of Muhammad escaping from Mecca. You know, he had escaped his house. That's the end of phase one. But this wasn't some haphazard midnight evacuation. You know, he had used his time wisely while he was kind of trapped in Mecca. And he had clearly planned for this for some time. For one thing, he, he had a ride. He wasn't escaping on foot. He and Abu Bakr had camels, which they had positioned in the back of the house. And then they had a pre-planned uh, initial destination, a, a place that they would go, you know, until the heat died down and people kind of at least sort of stopped looking for them. And they had even lined up a friendly shepherd. Um, this shepherd was a former slave of Abu Bakr's that he had freed. And this shepherd would take his sheep and he would cover their tracks, the tracks of the camels with the tracks of his sheep. And... <clears throat> Really, that shepherd was probably the only possible weak point in the plan. You know, there's always going to be some risk that has to be taken. And for Muhammad and Abu Bakr, their risk was that shepherd. Because that shepherd knew where they were hiding. You know, because he brought his sheep there at night. Um, the only other people who knew were Abu Bakr's children who brought, who brought them food in the cave. You know, so a few people knew he was there. Every one of them was family, except for this shepherd. You know, which does help the security situation to have only one possible weak link. But you still have to keep on thinking, boy, this guy Amir, can I trust him? Amir the shepherd. 
He's tending Abu Bakr's sheep. You know, he wasn't family. He's a freed slave. But he must have been one extremely trustworthy person. <laughs> and, of course, the bet paid off. I'm not foreshadowing anything. Amir the shepherd actually turned out to be a very trustworthy person and a good guy to bet on. Which is even more stunning when you think about his situation. Because Amir the shepherd had every incentive to turn them in. Every incentive. Because word quickly spread that there was a giant, I mean, a massive reward for the capture of Muhammad and Abu Bakr. A big reward. A huge reward. And this was not a rich person. This was a freed slave in Abu Bakr's employ. You know, so I suppose he may have thought he owed something to Abu Bakr, but boy, that's tempting. Even if you like your boss, I mean, really... I mean, I'm a decent guy, you know, and I like my boss, you know, and, and I'm lucky in that I genuinely like the people who currently employ me. But boy, for a huge reward, you think about it. <laughs> it would definitely cross my mind, especially for what would basically be retirement money. The reward being offered was 100 camels. For Muhammad and Abu Bakr. Well, I think Muhammad was probably the key one. Now, a hundred camels. That means almost nothing to pretty much everyone listening here. But at the time, that's not a small amount. Not even close. That's huge. Think of it more like someone offering a hundred cars. What could you do with a hundred cars? Or more importantly, how much money would you make? If you sold 100 cars, like I said, that's retirement money. And you could have rationalized it too. It really wouldn't be that hard. I would just say, oh, tell yourself, okay, hey, these guys, they're going to get caught. Every able bodied man in Mecca is in hot pursuit right now. They're going to be caught eventually. It will happen. So it's better that I get the reward than someone else. But that didn't happen. Um, you know, maybe Muhammad should have taken credit for that as a miracle. Um, in fact, Amir would soon actually bring them a guide who could get them to Medina through lesser known places. So he was just going above and beyond. But for now, Muhammad and Abu Bakr they were still hiding out in this cave to the south of Mecca. And yes, I said south. And that was very clever. Better south than north. Because Medina is north of Mecca. So everyone would be looking for them to the north, the direction of Medina. So that was good news. <laughs> you know, when they heard how many people were looking for them north of Mecca, you know, they, they simply weren't where most people were looking. So the trick kind of worked. But there was bad news, too. And that was just the sheer volume of people who were looking for them. You know, I'm not sure they could have anticipated such a gigantic reward being offered, or maybe they did. Even then, they were probably surprised by it. You know, and a massive reward will do that. You know, the relationship between humans and money. So you ended up with this situation where it was almost like a gold rush. The, the strongest people and the quickest to get 
to certain places and, and the best armed people, they all stake the best claims. They all got to look at the most likely places, which were to the north and the main roads. But all kinds of other people would still be staking a claim wherever they could. And so some thought, hey, you know, why not? How about we just search the caves to the south? What do we have to lose? And we have everything to gain. And this dynamic basically meant pretty much every possible place anywhere near Mecca was going to be searched by somebody. So eventually, and really inevitably, Muhammad and Abu Bakr began to hear voices outside of their cave. They could hear this small group of men talking and coming closer. So close, eventually, that they could hear the conversation. And at some point, the men suddenly agreed, you know what, there's no point in searching this cave. That was lucky. And eventually the voices grew fainter and they disappeared. Now what had made these people leave? Muhammad and Abu Bakr, they went toward the entrance, you know, wondering, are they gone? What, what is it? What happened? You know, why are, is there a giant monster outside there? What made them leave? And they were surprised to find three things that had not been there before. This is the, the story they later told. There was an acacia tree. I hope I'm saying that right. Which is kind of like a giant shrub. I looked it up. Acacia tree or acacia tree. I don't know how that's pronounced. So there was the tree, like like a giant bush. You know, a, there was the second thing was a dove's nest in a hollowed out rock on the floor of the entrance to the cave. And the third thing was a huge spider web that had been woven between the tree and the cave's entrance. And the description of this web often varies, you know, and sometimes it's even said to have covered the entire entrance, but either way, it was big. So the people must have seen this and thought, you know what, it's a waste of time to go into that cave, even with that reward. Maybe they were afraid of spiders. I don't know. Um, but I do understand the logic, you know, doves are only going to nest in a place that hasn't been recently disturbed and someone going in there would likely have disturbed the web, <laughs> uh, not something you necessarily want to do. And you don't know what kind of animal might be in there. Although, you know, this story, if true, the people who left that spot probably weren't terribly bright. Because the whole reason they were there in the first place was a risk-reward calculation. It's like, hey, you know, for a hundred cars, you know, I'm searching every cave. Why not? And then just to have that either scare you off. Yeah, I don't know. It, it doesn't seem terribly logical. So, again, maybe these just weren't terribly smart people. Um, if that's me, <laughs> I, I really don't care if it's unlikely. You know, someone could have crawled under the web or it could have been put up very fast. But again, maybe it's laziness, uh, <laughs> you know, or even the laziness of these people could be part of the miracle. Or perhaps they, like I said, arachnophobia, that's, that's a common thing. But anyway, Muhammad and Abu Bakr had no such fear. So they stayed put on the safe side of the web until Abu Bakr's children and Amir, that's the shepherd, remember, 
they came back. And they came back with two camels and a Bedouin guide. So Muhammad and Abu Bakr cut through the web. It's almost like <laughs> point of no return. Okay, we're cutting through the web. We're out of here. You know, they were very careful with the bird's nest, you know, because they're nice, gentle people. And they set out. Muhammad ended up riding what was considered the better of the two camels. Um, of course, Abu Bakr insisted and <laughs> that he ride the better camel. And he actually gifted it to Muhammad just to get him on top of it because he didn't actually want to ride the better camel because it wasn't his. So once it became his, he's like, okay, Abu Bakr, I'll ride it. Um, and this camel would actually turn out to be pretty famous. As uh, We'll note later, he would actually, this camel literally would pick the site of Muhammad's home in Medina. And we'll get to that eventually. I should probably also note that uh, this Bedouin guide, you don't, they don't really tell you much about him, but that was another person who also did not turn them in. Uh, this guide took them west and a bit further south initially. Uh, the goal was to get to a coastal route that paralleled the Red Sea, and then they would go north from there. You know, and once they got far enough north, they would eventually take a more direct line toward Medina, or Yathrib, as it was known at the time. And really, the close call in the cave would be as close as they would get to being caught on this journey. There actually isn't much drama after this. You know, aside from the people who knew that they were in that cave, there were only two interactions along the way. First, they ran into a caravan but it turned out to be Abu Bakr's cousin coming south. Quite lucky. So no biggie. You know, family can be trusted, especially back then. They even got a change of clothes out of that. So it actually turned out to be a good, a good thing. And then there was a second interaction, a second run-in. Uh, it makes some of the histories, and others don't really care about it and just don't think it's worth mentioning. But it does have a source and a chain of transmission and parts of it were good enough for the Sahih Bukhari Hadith collection. So it's definitely worth mentioning and, and quite credible. The story is that there was a young man who found Muhammad and Abu Bakr, and he wanted to collect the reward. He was on a horse. This young man was on a horse, and he was carrying divining arrows. Now, the horse is important because he could easily catch up to a couple of guys on camels with a horse, I think. You know, this is like a police car chasing a minivan. And the divining arrows, um, let me explain what that is. I'm not going to assume most people know what that is. I certainly didn't. Um, so divining arrows, what are these things? Well, this young man on the horse was an Arab pagan. So many of these you know, Arab pagans, they would carry a quiver full of divining arrows. So what makes these arrows special? Really, there was just an inscription on the side of the arrows. You know, for example, someone who wanted to let fate handle things or the gods or whatever would carry arrows that said, do it and don't do it, you know, in a blank one for try again. You know, this is the kind of thing that would be inscribed on the side of a divining arrows. So you, you reach into the quiver, 
and then you would do what the arrow said. Basically, it was an ancient Arab version of the, the magic eight ball. You know, you shake it and it gives vague predictions of the future. Now, this must have been pretty mainstream because the Quran actually went as far as to ban these things. It was just that common in the culture. And they were also used for gambling, which is something the Quran also frowns upon. And this superstitious young man, you know, he had these divining arrows, and when he spotted Muhammad and Abu Bakr, he kept drawing the don't do it arrow, or the do not harm them arrow. The, the words vary. It was something like that. But this young man was not listening to the arrows. <laughs> he, he decided to override his divining arrows, which was a really big deal for someone with his beliefs. But he decided to go after Muhammad and Abu Bakr anyway. You know, again, a hundred cars will make you do that. So this young man's horse was not cooperating. You know, as he tried to go after them, you know, the horse, it kept stumbling. And he realized he just wasn't going to be able to do this. So he dismounted shouting at Muhammad and Abu Bakr, you know, hey, I mean you no harm over here, over here. And he approached them. He asked for what seems to be what I can only describe as a document of friendship. Like He wanted it written down that I had done this good thing, you know, or something like that. And Abu Bakr wrote this note on paper or described it on a bone or, you know, there are various stories like that. Now, this note would become important for this young man because he would actually later redeem that note after the conquest of Mecca, and he came away with a large but unspecified reward. With that behind them, Muhammad and Abu Bakr continued their journey, which took 12 days from the time that they left the cave. So... In total, it was a little over two weeks since they left Mecca, and the end was near. You know, in a typical escape movie, this this would be the climactic scene. You know, earlier I mentioned two escape movies: the the Shawshank Redemption and The Great Escape. And those were not just random references, because Muhammad's approach to Medina, Yathrib at this point, of course, Muhammad's final scene on the run. I always think of it as a combination of two famous scenes from these movies. So, you know, if you're familiar with these at all, think of Muhammad's approach to Medina um, as a combination of the scene where the escapees reach Spain in The Great Escape. I think of maybe just one person. He reached Spain, right? And then there was also the very, very last scene from The Shawshank Redemption. You know, um, in The Great Escape, you know, these... People are up in the mountains. They're looking at a green landscape and what I presume is a valley below. You know, the prisoner, should I say former prisoner, he says, Spain. And the guide replies, España. They finally made it. And I could really, really see this scene taking place between Muhammad and their guide. And then there's the end of the Shawshank Redemption, probably a little more well-known. And just the joy on Red's face when he sees his friend Andy again, and vice versa. You know, and we'll get to the joyful reunion soon. But for now, by the reunion of the Muslims, I mean. But for now, we have Abu Bakr, 
Muhammad and their guide high up on a ridge. It had been 12 days since they left the cave. And now they finally look upon Yathrib and they see a spot of green in the distance. It's Kuba, basically a suburb or an outer neighborhood of Yathrib. So you have the final moment of joy and relief that you tend to see in many escape style movies. What makes it different though, is that in many movies, there would be some kind of final tense scene, you know, where the hero faces one final obstacle and the bad guys are closing in, you know, like again, in the great escape, uh, that, that motorcycle scene at the end where Steve McQueen can't get his motorcycle into Switzerland, just barely doesn't make it. But that didn't happen here. <laughs> there wasn't really much drama leading up to this scene. For one thing, the Quraysh and their army of bounty hunters were just nowhere near Muhammad and Abu Bakr at this point. And even if they were, the Muslims had one more thing going for them. Because the people of Yathrib, they were looking for Muhammad and Abu Bakr too. You know, they weren't just sitting around waiting for them to come. They were sending people out. You know, the people in what would be called Medina, you know, they had heard about this situation and they knew there was a bounty on Muhammad. They knew he might not make it. So every day they were sending out search parties in hopes of finding them, assisting them in case some Quraysh or mercenary person tried to apprehend or kill them. But that didn't happen. You know, fortunately for Muhammad and Abu Bakr, but you know, really unfortunately for later storytellers, you know, none of these parties ended up running into Muhammad. You know, instead, he was actually spotted by someone on a roof and someone who wasn't even looking for him. The person who eventually found him, this is again in Kuba, the, the suburb of Yathrib, he was a local Jewish resident who happened to be in the right place at the right time. He called out to the town, and at noon on that day, Muhammad and Abu Bakr were greeted by the people of Kuba. Muhammad would actually end up staying with a man of the Aus tribe, who had taken in both Hamza and Zaid before him. This is just temporary. Remember, that they're actually not in Yathrib yet. And Abu Bakr stayed with someone of the rival tribe, the Khazraj, so they had their bases covered. And Ali would actually arrive in the same place a few days later, having settled all of Muhammad's debts and returning all the things that did not fully belong to him. But the stay would be short in Cuba, and three days later, on a Friday, Muhammad entered Medina to great fanfare. You know, the people were just beside themselves with joy. And really, why, why shouldn't they be? They were all free now. And they were all together, the first community, secure and prosperous in Medina. The future finally looked a bit certain. You know, one small question remained, though. Where would Muhammad live? Now, unsurprisingly, every person in the town was offering their house as Muhammad's residence some for pious reasons, and others understanding it would be the center of power in the years to come. So Muhammad has literally just set 
foot in Medina, and he already has an impossible political problem to solve. You know, because you, if you're going to stay at one place, that person is going to be of the Aus tribe or the Khazraj tribe, and there's going to be all kinds of problems. So, I mean, again, <laughs> it's a tough situation. Any decision Muhammad would have made would have been problematic in some way. It would have offended someone. So in the end, Muhammad actually let his camel make the decision. Kaswa, the camel. Muhammad's new camel would actually choose the place where they would build Muhammad a house. So the camel wandered around Medina with the understanding that wherever this camel lay down, that would be where the prophet would live. The camel eventually came to rest in an empty courtyard, which was owned by it was owned by two orphan boys. So Muhammad arranged to buy it from them, although the boys offered to give it to him for free. And that wasn't going to happen, obviously. That's a bad look at any time. There, here, and everywhere. Powerful men do not take gifts from orphans. <laughs> it goes the other way. So Muhammad pays him a, the orphans, I believe, some good price for this empty chunk of land. And this place would be the location of Muhammad's residence eventually, as well as the place of the first mosque. And in the meantime, he stayed in a nearby house. But, you know, this place, again, it, it, it's not just Muhammad's house. It was so much more. You know, it, it was going to be the first mosque and the community center and the center of Medinan life, basically, for the first Muslim community. A community that had just been formed on that Friday, in the first year of the Muslim calendar. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next time. Inshallah. Thank you for listening to Islam for Christians. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to keep this show ad-free, you can also visit my Patreon page and subscribe. I'm at patreon.com slash Islam for Christians. That's patreon.com slash Islam for Christians.